Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly show about science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, co-editor of our daily app Espresso, and this week we find out how science is solving deadly problems in the midst of a war zone. All of the researchers, those in Europe and in Damascus, have really kept in touch and done all their work over the internet. They're subject to like rocket and mortar attack, but they come to work every day. We Skype them, we, we email them. First up, though... That's a trailer from the soon-to-be-released Quake Champions, one of this year's most highly anticipated video games. The Quake series was first introduced in 1996, and it set the gaming world alight as the first fully three-dimensional game on the market. The early versions of Quake would hardly impress any gamer native to the world of 3D. But 20 years since it was first released, the technology behind Quake is now moving far beyond gaming, even as far as Hollywood. Tim Cross, our science correspondent, is here with me now. Tim, when we talk about the technology behind games, what we're really talking about, I'm learning, is game engines. What are they? That's right. So a a modern game is incredibly complicated as a piece of software. And uh, the point of an engine is that you can make a game without having to constantly reinvent the wheel. So somebody's written all the code already that does things like it displays the graphics, it handles how, you know, playing with other people works, it handles things like physics in the world. All that's done for you. And all you need to do is bring along your own artists and your own ideas about how the gameplay should work. And you can, like, build it on top of it. It's a little bit like... Microsoft Word. If you want to write a letter, it'd be pretty tedious if you had to write a word processor from scratch every time you wanted to do that. Uh, It's the same basic idea as that, except applied to video games. And so how did the invention of the game engine change gaming itself? It was a sort of natural outgrowth of, of the fact that these things got more and more complicated. So originally, 30 years ago, any given game, you would probably just write all the code straight from scratch. And as the graphics got better and computers got more capable, and it took, began to take more and more time to create one of these things and more and more effort, at some point it became worth you know, hiving off all that to, to sort of specialist companies who would just build engines and then license them to any game developing studio that wants to to make a game. So the game developers save a lot of time and, and effort not having to write all the code themselves and the engine makers have a business licensing the software to other people. And somehow this kind of game game engine template thing is of use to Hollywood. How's that work? Well, so what they do, what these things do essentially is they are very good at quickly and rapidly generating pretty slick computer graphics. And if you look at a modern video game and compare it to something like Quake, which, as you said, it's two decades old now, Quake looks like a muddy brown mess if you look at it now. Some of the more modern games, you know, the kind of graphics you can do in real time are really pretty striking. They're, they're getting very, very good. You know, and this is a consequence of just computer hardware getting better and this sort of cutthroat competition in the games business for, for better and better graphics. And they're essentially getting to the point now where people outside the industry are starting to think, hey, we could use some quickly drawn 3D graphics. There's all kinds of cool stuff we could do with that. Um, and one of the big industries that's interested is the filmmaking industry because they are exploring whether these things can be used 
to replace the kind of traditional special effects that you used to get in films. Like green screens and that sort of thing? Yeah, so a lot of modern films use loads of special effects, and the way that's usually done is you put your actors in front of something called a green screen, which is just a big... The whole shot is painted this uniform colour of green. The green is taken away, and the special effects are added in later in something called post-production. But one of the problems with a green screen, as anyone who saw the, uh, the three Star Wars films that came out at the turn of the millennium, you basically have actors on a stage trying to interact with things that aren't there. So there might be some computer-generated character that's dropped in later, but you know the actor's just talking to empty air. And that's hard to do, and sometimes it looks wooden and, and a bit artificial. So the hope is that by using game engines, you can essentially do a rough version of the special effects in real time. So rather than waiting till after the film, all the filming is done to add the special effects in, the director gets to look through a camera and he'll see a sort of rough version of, you know, the alien or whatever it is you're trying to drop into the scene there in front of him moving in real time. And he can say to the actor, oh, no, you know, look a bit to the left or you need to like react a bit more when, when he does this. And hopefully it makes the special effects just more seamless and less, less noticeable. And Disney recently used this this same technique with uh, the Jungle Book, right? Yeah, so, so so they took one of the game engines called Unity, which is one of the, the sort of big ones that almost everyone uses in, in the industry. And, and the Jungle Book, it's, it's a mix. The actor who plays the main character, Mowgli, he, he's a real human being, and they stitch in loads and loads of computer-generated imagery, and, and people have all been sort of wowed at, at the quality of it. Okay, well, let's just hear some of that now, and you can talk us through what it is that we're hearing. Man is forbidden! Yeah, so so in that scene, there's a um, you've got Mowgli, the main character, who's played by you know a human being, and he's interacting. He's talking to a tiger uh, and a panther, both of which uh, are computer generated. You know, they aren't real. So there's a clip online, and I think we're going to put the the URL in, in the show notes, where you can see this stuff all happening behind the scenes, and you, you can see them filming it. And what they do is they use Unity to uh, create essentially rough versions of the tiger and the panther and drop them right into the scene as they're filming it. So the director can give directions to to the actor and and say, you know, look a bit to the left or something like that. The way it was put to me is, you know, in the old days before we had all this, these computer generated effects, you know, you'd look through the camera lens and what you see would be what ended up on the final film. And then the last 20 years where there's been an awful lot of computer-generated stuff, that hasn't been true. You know, you you look through the camera and you have to imagine what it's going to look like when the special effects are added. And we're sort of getting back to the original situation now where we can basically generate these special effects so quickly and so rapidly and so well that, that you're sort of back to where filmmakers were before all this CGI came along. And they can look through the camera and see something pretty much that's identical to what, what the final film is going to look like. And there's no need to worry about what will happen in post-production because you can see it happening in front of you. Well, look, that, that all sounds very handy for, for directors and actors. But the question from the viewer standpoint is, does the output actually compete with the sort of special effects that we're already accustomed to? This is a really interesting question. I think at the moment, in you know if you if you're a hollywood blockbuster with millions to spend on your your special effects probably not quite yet you still want to actually do the special effects separately afterwards and it takes you know hours to render each scene and so on but i think we're getting pretty close you know we're not quite at, at photorealism yet but we're at a level where the images you can generate are pretty convincing um, and people have said to me we probably won't see this immediately, but maybe in three, four, five years, we might see, if not movies, then maybe TV shows doing all their special effects in a video game engine immediately on the set and there being no need for post-production at all. 
So we've made our way from from Quake now to the Jungle Book. The question is, where else does this go? This seems like it might be quite useful in other fields. Yeah, and I mean, if you talk to, um, just to take an example, uh, architects. Architects actually do a lot of this kind of work. They like to show customers around the buildings that they're going to build before they've actually built them. In the past, a lot of the time, they would just have a canned animation where a sort of camera, you know, zooms through the lobby and and shows you one or two things. And again, that would take several hours or a day to, to render offline, and it's a canned animation, you can't ever change it. A lot of them now are starting to experiment with Unity and, and other engines like Unreal and building their buildings in those and using that to, to show off to people. So things like virtual reality um, and especially augmented reality, which is a, a sort of close cousin where instead of dumping someone into a computer-generated world, you, you, you take the real world and then paint things on top of it. Like This is what Google Glass was trying to do. And they point out that to do anything at all in VR or AR, you need a way to rapidly generate you know, 3D computer graphics. And that's exactly what, what they're selling. So I think their hope is they'll become the sort of platform on which all VR and AR apps ultimately get built, which obviously would be, would be quite a coup for them. So this could go all kinds of ways. What, what are the first things that we're actually going to see this sort of in use outside of the Hollywood case? Well, there's this one really nifty example of a, a company in Oslo called Future Universe. Their boss used to work for Warner Brothers, actually, on, on the Matrix films. And their idea is they want to basically use game engines to build interactive TV. They're under all kinds of NDAs, and he, he wouldn't give me, you know, he, this was just meant to be an illustrative example. Are, said, are you sure you can tell us this? Well, I didn't actually sign anything, so, so probably. But one example they gave me was of a game show where you would have real-life studio contestants, people actually in the studio doing this. But what they would be doing would be all computer-generated. So maybe they'd be racing rocket ships or something like that. And at home, you would see them in rocket ships racing around the universe. But because it's a, a game engine, and effectively they're running an instance of the game, it lets people at home who have smartphones or tablets or whatever connect, jump in, and play against the people who are in the studio sort of live and in real time. And you'll see your own rocket ship on the TV screen as you zoom past them or they zoom past you. You know, it lets you do this kind of interactive TV that people have been talking about for 30 years and hasn't hasn't really happened yet. Tim Cross, thank you very much. Thanks, Jason. Don't forget, listeners, if you have any thoughts on what we've just discussed, you can tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Next, we move on to the latest advance in biotechnology, coming out of Syria. Paul Markilli, our innovation editor, joins me now to talk about how a team of scientists in Syria and Europe have been working together on a nifty way to get rid of a nasty toxin. Uh, Paul, first off, what's the toxin? Well, the toxin is a dioxin, and these are uh, a particularly nasty form of persistent organic pollutant, which can lead to reproductive development problems, damage the immune system, and even cause cancer. They build up gradually in the body of animals and then in people who eat the animals. So they're very, very nasty. And what's happened is a a research team in Damascus, been working with um, some scientists in Europe, have come up with a way of extracting a material from the pits or the stones of dates, which are really a waste product. And that material can absorb these dioxins, which allows them to potentially be used to clean up water, such as areas used for fish farming, and potentially even land. So why why dates in particular? For a start, dates are a free resource, so they can be used to extract a, a material which has a strong affinity for absorbing dioxins from water and potentially the grounds. And um, the work by Dr. Hanano in uh, Damascus has found that if you can extract this material, it uh, really works very very well as a cleanup agent 
for dioxins. And so it's just a matter of the, the date stones being otherwise just sort of rubbish in theory. Is this, is this the idea? Well, they are normally a uh, material that would get thrown away. Um, I mean, if you eat the date, you spit the stone out. The date processing industry, if you buy dates with the stones removed, I mean, people have tried soaking them in water to feed into animals, but it's not been very successful. They are basically a waste product. So tell me how you get then the, uh, the good stuff out of these date stones. The materials can be removed from date stones uh, in a number of laboratories processes, which uh, Dennis Murphy, a professor of biotechnology at the University of South Wales, and uh, one of a number of European researchers who's helped Dr. Hanano uh, with this uh, research, uh, will tell us now. We grind them up in like a food mixer, and then we spin them in a centrifuge, and it forms like cream on top of milk. So you get this like creamy layer on the top, and that's all these little lipid micro droplets. And the effect of using these uh, micro droplets to absorb dioxins was, in fact, very strong. They act like what we'd say is a molecular magnet. These droplets have, have a lot of oil in them, and dioxins really love to dissolve in oil. And uh, within a few minutes, all dioxins essentially were removed from the solution, um, and they, they just went into these little droplets. So it's a very effective way of cleaning up dioxins in the environment. Okay, so the what's going on here seems quite clear, but how might it even be deployed? This process has been shown to work in the laboratory. The next step is how you might use this in the field, so to speak. One way could be putting this material into a cartridge which is used in um, fish farming so that you can treat the water where dioxins can accumulate. And it may be possible to do the same on the land, although the ways that that might be done uh, have not yet been worked out either. That's incredible. And I think what's more incredible about it is that all of this happened with a team in Syria coordinating with a team in Europe. Yes, they have been working in a war zone. All of the researchers, those in Europe and in Damascus, have really kept in touch and done all their work over the internet, uh, exchanging data that way and meeting face-to-face through Skype. Dr. Murphy explains his experience of uh, working with the team this way. We were so pleased to be able to help these guys. They're subject to like rocket and mortar attack, but they come to work every day. We Skype them, we, we email them constantly. And, you know, they're just trying to get on with regular life, but None of them have left Damascus in four years. It's, it's been a really interesting and, and it's kind of humbling experience because, you know, I tell my students, if you think things are bad, just look at these guys. This is really cutting-edge biotechnology in uh, what's effectively a war zone. You know, we talk a lot on this show about how technology enables the industry of science, but I have to say this is probably the most poignant case I've heard. Indeed. I mean, it's really leading-edge work, and uh, I think it goes to show that today such research could be carried out anywhere in the world, even among people who never have a chance to meet. Paul Markelly, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Babbage. To find our stories on date stones and game engines, pick up this week's issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Jason Palmer, and thanks for joining us. Till next time. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.